Hello, it's Tuesday, the 8th of November, and welcome to Career 24. I'm your host, Kwon Jang-woo. The National Police Agency's special investigation team on the Itaewon crowd crush disaster raided 55 government offices on Tuesday, including the police chiefs. We'll have more in our news briefing shortly. North Korea's recent provocations have heightened concerns about its nuclear and missile capabilities. We assess how far the regime has come for our in-depth today. And then coming up on Touch Basin's Hole, we talk to the head coach of the Korean men's national rugby teams, who has transformed the sport in the country. We have all that and more on today's Korea 24. A special police investigation into the circumstances of the Itaewon crowd crush included a raid on dozens of government offices on this Tuesday. This as lawmakers on both sides of the political aisle up the pressure on the police for its poor response that disastrous night. For more on this and our other headlines of the day, we're joined in the studio by KBS World Radio News Editor Eunice Kim. Eunice, hello. Hello. This latest search and seizure comes about a week after the police conducted their first raids on the Yongsan Police Station, the District Office and the Seoul Metropolitan Police Agency. But far more have been raided now then. Yeah, that's right. They are probing the chain of command as they seek to figure out what went terribly wrong that night of October 29, which of course ended with more than 150 people dead and even more wounded in a single group collapse. The National Police Agency's Special Investigation Headquarters on Tuesday raided 55 government offices, converging also at the offices of Police Commissioner General Yoon Hee-gun and Seoul Metropolitan Police. Police Agency Chief Kim Kwang-ho, as well as sites related to the fire service, such as the Seoul Metropolitan Fire and Disasters Headquarters and the Yongsan Fire Station. Police are seeking to secure cell phone records of key suspects and witnesses, as well as documents, surveillance footage, and computer data related to the Halloween festivities in Itaewon. This comes as contents of another set of telephone records were released, revealing the tragic intensity and desperation of that night. Right. We, of course, first saw transcripts of the 112 calls which connect to police. These 119 emergency calls connect to the fire department when emergency medical help is needed. And transcripts showed that there were 87 calls taken in the frantic hours of the Itaewon crowd crush between 10.15 p.m. that Saturday night into just before 1 a.m. the following day. The first caller reported injuries and warned of possible deaths from a crowd crush, and within minutes, emergency responders were dispatched to the scene at 10.17 p.m., one minute before another call reported many people pinned beneath the crowd in the alley beside the Hamilton Hotel. The total of 19 callers specifically expressed fear deaths could arise from the crowd surge. Calls started to come in simultaneously afterwards for which many uh, only shrieks, groans, or wails were audible. These transcripts were issued by the National Fire Agency and made public by a minor basic income party lawmaker. 
You told us yesterday that the president had strongly reprimanded the police for its lack of response during a meeting of senior officials uh, relevant to emergency response. Uh, the sentiment is shared by lawmakers of both sides of the political aisle, I understand. Yes, uh, both the ruling and opposition lawmakers blasted the police's poor response to the Itaewon crowd crush during a parliamentary uh, public administration and security committee meeting today and called for those responsible to be held accountable. But blame was assigned differently by the rival camps. The main opposition Democratic Party called for the resignation of the Interior and Safety Minister Lee Sang-min and Police Commissioner General Yoon Hee-gun. Directing his remarks at the minister, uh, DP lawmaker Chun Jun-ho said he had neglected his responsibility as Interior Minister and had inflicted further pain on the people with his inappropriate remarks. For his part, the Safety Minister ruled out a resignation, underlining that he has renewed determination to handle the aftermath of the tragedy and draft countermeasures to prevent a recurrence. Meanwhile, over on the ruling People Power Party side, uh, it found fault with the former Yongsan police station chief Im Jae and Ryu Mi-jin, who was in charge of the Seoul Metropolitan Police Agency's emergency call monitoring at the time of the incident. Uh, PPP lawmaker Chung Woo-tae also made mention of the fact that the two officials were known to have been promoted to their posts three months prior to the end of the previous Moon Jae-in government. Okay, let's turn to other headlines now. Japanese media are reporting that the U.S. plans to deploy an aircraft carrier in waters to the Korean Peninsula's east if and when North Korea returns to nuclear testing. Can you tell us more? Yeah, this comes to us via Kyoto News, which cited unnamed sources with knowledge on the matter. It reported the decision is being expected to be taken in alignment with Japan and South Korea, noting that the Joe Biden administration regards, quote, integrated deterrence as a key part of its national security strategy. In addition to the deployment of an aircraft carrier in the occasion of a seventh nuclear test by North Korea. The report said the U.S. is likely to pursue the adoption of a U.N. Security Council resolution that further prohibits North Korea-bound exports of crude oil and refined petroleum products, also imposing sanctions on the North Korean hacking group Lazarus. Under consideration among the three countries are also unilateral sanctions against Pyongyang. Leaders of the three nations are making arrangements to meet on the sidelines of international meetings in Southeast Asia later this month for follow-up discussions on how to respond to further North Korean provocations. On to economic headlines next. South Korea's current account is back in the black after logging a deficit in August, but the surplus in September was still sharply lower than from a year ago. Can you run us through the numbers? Sure. According to tentative data released by the Bank of Korea on Tuesday, the country's current account balance logged a surplus of 1.61 billion U.S. dollars in September. That is a turnaround from August, as you noted, the blip we saw after three straight months in current account surplus previously. But the current account surplus in September was still nearly nine billion 
$1,000 lower from a year earlier. And this is being attributed to a sharp fall in the surplus of the goods balance, which slipped by over $9 billion on year to $490 million in September. The cumulative current account surplus through September came in at $24.1 billion. That is down by nearly $43.3 billion from a year earlier. Meanwhile, the country's largest bakery chain, SPC Group, was raided by prosecutors on Tuesday as part of a probe on unfair business practices and dereliction of duty. Yeah, this appears to be a new investigation separate from that tragic death of a worker at one of its affiliates involving suspicions that SPC Group had unfairly increased the profit of one of its affiliates, SPC's Hamrib, in a bid to raise the value of its shares held by the chairman's children. This in order to help the family maintain control over the group and facilitate a smoother power transition to the next generation. The Seoul Central District Prosecutor's Office on Tuesday sent investigators to obtain accounting records and internal audit reports from the group's headquarters and affiliate offices, as well as the office of the group chair, Ha Young-in. According to the outcome of an earlier investigation by the Fair Trade Commission, other affiliates allegedly had helped SPC's Hamrip earn 41.4 billion won between 2011 and 2019 by unfairly awarding its contracts. In other news, the city of Seoul has revealed a plan to increase the number of late-night taxis to 7,000, starting by temporarily lifting an operating restriction on privately owned taxis. Can you tell us more? Yeah, this begins on Thursday. Seoul City Hall announced today that through the end of the year, the regulation requiring private drivers to take days off will be suspended for the first time in 45 years as the government seeks to put more taxis on the roads by increasing drivers' autonomy. Dividing drivers into 10 groups to work weeknight shifts, officials uh, expected that some 5,000 additional taxis will be operating at night. Corporate taxi companies, meanwhile, plan to hold a job fair this month to hire new drivers, offering them various incentives. They expect to put an additional 2,000 cabs in service. The city will also expand operations of overnight OWL buses starting on December 1st. And finally, Korea Railroad Corporation, or CoRail, has offered an apology after a train derailment on Sunday caused delays and suspensions in services through Monday. Right, this happened Sunday night, and while there were no fatalities, thankfully, the derailed train did heavily impact Monday commuters, not only on the speed train KTX lines, but also the heavily used subway Line 1. The cause of the incident is still not yet known, but CoRail said in a statement on Tuesday that it sincerely apologizes for causing inconveniences with long hours of delays and suspensions in train services due to the recovery work of the derailment. Coriel said that normal services will resume from Tuesday. That's all for our news briefing today. Thank you for those updates. You bet.
North Korea has quickly escalated its provocations in recent weeks, launching dozens of missiles of various types, including an intercontinental ballistic missile, or ICBM. It seems all that's left now is for the regime to carry out its seventh nuclear test, which is thought to have been ready for over half a year now. To get some expert analysis on the reclusive state's missile and nuclear capabilities and what they would look to gain from another nuclear test, we're joined on the line now by Marcus Schiller, a leading expert on North Korea missiles and who's the founder of the Munich-based consulting company ST Analytics. Mr Schiller, thank you for being on the show today. Thank you for having me. Hello. First off, can I get your overall assessment of North Korea's current missile and nuclear capabilities? How capable and dangerous are they? Well, North Korea definitely made a huge leap over the past 10 years in regard to the capabilities, in regard to the variety of different missile types that they now have, according to their own statements operational, and also with the range. So they introduced a few ICBMs over the past five years and now are able to actually threaten the United States homeland, which is a new thing. But the Republic of Korea, South Korea, has been threatened from North Korean tactical ballistic missiles over the past three decades. So not that much new thing on that side. Mm. Okay. And you talked about how they've improved their variety and range. Uh, what's next for them now? What kind of advancement is North Korea trying to make in terms of its uh, missile and nuclear capabilities? That's a very good question because they have always been in for a surprise over the past years. So whenever someone thought or said that North Korea has achieved what it wanted to achieve, they waited for a few months or years and then suddenly something completely new appeared, which no one had on his list. Take that train-launched missiles, for example, or that uh, launch of a missile out of a basin, like a, um, like a dam, like a lake, just a few months ago. So they're always in for a surprise. Right, so we should brace for the unexpected, perhaps. Uh, meanwhile, the seventh nuclear test has long been expected by North Korea watchers. Since the start of the year, essentially, uh, the South Korean intelligence agency and others have said that the facilities in the Yangbyon nuclear facility have been operational for a while now. It's been over five years since North Korea carried out its sixth nuclear test. From a technical standpoint, Mr. Schiller, what do you think North Korea would be looking to gain from a seventh nuclear test? Why would such a test be necessary? Well, first of all, I have to tell you that I'm not a nuclear scientist by training, but an engineer, a missile and rocket engineer. And so my insights into the nuclear program are limited. Nonetheless, as an engineer, I can tell you that if you want to be sure that some device, some machine actually works, you have to test it. Else, it's always risky. Something could go wrong. You might have heard of Murphy's Law, which states everything that can go wrong will go wrong. Mm. And that's certainly true for complex machines. It is true for rockets, I can tell you that. And it might also be true for nuclear weapons. So if North Korea actually wants to have a working deterrent, they might want to actually test their weaponry from time to time to be sure that it works and to be sure that the adversaries also understand that the nuclear weapons are working. Hmm. 
So then why do you think the seventh test hasn't happened until now? Is there any technical reason why they could not have done it? That's a good question. Because, um, I have to tell you again, I'm not a nuclear scientist, so sure. I can't tell mm. you how hard it is to actually develop a nuclear weapon and what the obstacles are and how many tests you have to do over the course process of developing those weapons. If we look back in history, all the nuclear weapon states did a lot of testing over the years. Even Israel, if you look closely, might have tested some devices. And so North Korea certainly also has to make some tests to be sure that it works. So it might be some political reason why they refrain from testing over the past years. Mm. Perhaps they want to wait for the right time to send a political signal because we can certainly be sure that a nuclear weapon test is going to be interpreted as a very political signal by the rest of the world. And perhaps they're just waiting for the right moment. Sure, indeed. So perhaps more political than anything technical. Uh, meanwhile, in an interview with uh, The Voice of America, Ali Heinonen, the former deputy director of the International Atomic Energy Agency and a distinguished fellow at the Stimson Center currently, he said North Korea is likely to do some nuclear tests in order to manufacture miniaturized tactical nuclear weapons. Uh, that Pyongyang has discussed. For our listeners, can you explain for us perhaps what the significance of these weapons are and what do you make of his comments? Well, he certainly is right in that regard. He is a very distinguished person in his field and he certainly understands nuclear programs and nuclear weapons programs. So I completely agree with that statement with him. So it could well be that they are working on a miniaturized warhead that they want to put onto their tactical ballistic missiles. And if they want to be sure that this miniaturized warhead actually works, they have to detonate it at some point. So this could well be true. They're just, just working on a tactical warhead, miniaturization, perhaps by themselves, perhaps with some help from outside. I don't know how complex the actual nuclear miniaturization programs are, but I would expect them to receive some outside help just as they receive the ballistic missile program. And so what we see from the ballistic missile program, they certainly are signaling to the rest of the world that they are working on tactical nuclear weapons. This was the main reason of the drills in October and September, October that they stated. And they always kept on talking about tactical nuclear missiles in their arsenal that they are developing. So it would be a good match if they are actually also working on a tactical warhead for these missiles. And that might be the next text. test. Yes, that might actually be true. Mm, OK. In, mean, in the meantime, uh, as you said, South Korea uh, has been under the risk of uh, North Korean weapons for several decades. Uh, how dangerous and threatening are North Korea's weapons? How much risk is the Korean Peninsula under? Well, I think the risk increased in a way that North Korea now openly threatens South Korea, the whole peninsula, with their ballistic missiles in a way that they did not do so over the past decade. Now they are pulling off operational maneuvers, operational tests of various ballistic missiles with tactical range and are certainly signaling to South Korea that they are intended, they are ready to use them in open war. This is different to what was the situation in, say, the 1990s or 2000s when they just launched some SCUDs 
somewhere that they didn't actually define where to, and they just communicated that they would uh, change, uh, that they would attack South Korea and create a sea of flames and statements like that that were quite undirected. Now they actually, in the latest press release about the tests over the past days, they actually told us what they were doing and how they were actually following attack plans against the peninsula and with different missiles attacking different targets and what they were up to. So it, it seems that they are now much more refined mm. in their um, attitude of using these weapons in open warfare than they have ever been before. Before it was just deterrence and saying, leave us alone, uh, else we will hit you with several dozens or hundreds of scuds. These scuds were not very precise, not very accurate, so it might have resulted in a lot of damage. But North Korea certainly would not have any chance of fighting any war with these scuds and maintaining a status quo over a few days. Hmm. But now with these more precise and accurate missiles that they keep on displaying and keep on displaying the successes and the precision of these weapons, I think some South Korean military defense specialists will have headaches and sleepless nights because they have to assume that all these stories coming from North Korea about the precision and the operational readiness of these weapons are true. And this is certainly something also looking into Ukraine and Russia and what happens there. This is certainly something that might give you a headache in a future conflict. Mm, I see. Uh, how important are these recent tests to raise the capabilities uh, of the North Korea missiles? Do they need to carry out these tests or are they ready already? And the tests, do you think they're more about show than actually uh, testing the technical capabilities of missiles? Well, they definitely are now more ready than they ever were. And the years before, there were a lot of tests that you could actually dismiss as show tests when they were launching uh, Huavong 14, for example, and then claiming now it was an operational ICBM with just a single launch. So you can certainly doubt that from an engineering point of view because you really have to iron out all the possible failures and flaws in a missile before you can use it in an actual war. But now with that many tests happening over so many weeks and so many days and continuous testing and also the operational aspects of testing that we are seeing, that North Korea now claims to test during maneuvers, that is something new. It has a new quality of testing. And this looks now what we've been saying over the past years. This now looks really like they started deploying these weapons and are ready to use them. Before that, it was just show and deterrence. A kind of opaqueness of not mm. knowing how good these weapons are and if North Korea actually has a lot of them at their disposal and can actually use them in a conflict. Now it looks that they are sending the message, and the message looks good right now, that they actually possess these weapons in significant numbers, numbers that are high enough mm. to give you a headache, and might actually not refrain from escalating a conflict into using those weapons. Right, so it is a significant escalation then. Uh, what about uh, ICBMs? Yeah. The successful development of ICBMs triggered alarms in the US as it meant that the US mainland was under threat now from North Korea's missiles. But how real is that threat currently? Uh, do they really have the capabilities to uh, hit US mainland uh, with any sort of accuracy? 
Yes, that's certainly up to debate right now. Because when we look to 2017, the tests that they pulled off at that time, at that year, with the Huazong 14 and the Huazong 15, looked very successful. But we didn't see any development work going on. Hmm. So that might have been fireworks, like um, like a one-time show. And it worked. And so everybody was kind of afraid that they might have more of these ICBMs. And they showed that these ICBMs are working as as a missile as intended. So the risk that they might be used against the U.S. homeland certainly was there. What we have been seeing now at the start of this year were a lot of strange tests that were by South Korea, Japan, and also the U.S. interpreted as some how related to ICBM tests, but they never reached the full flight regime of an ICBM flight. So we are still not sure what was going on there with mm. the information that we have access to. But it seems also that North Korea is working on something in that regard, on some bigger missile. And we know that their Huazong 17 test in March actually failed, and they tried to cover it up with another Huazong 15 launch. And so there's something going on there. They are trying to do something. They are trying to launch these missiles and get them more and more reliable and also signaling with that that they are not possessing a single missile that they just show off, but that they actually work on something to hit the U.S. in greater numbers. And so they try to increase the deterrence, the potential of deterring the U.S. from actually entering a conflict between the two Koreas at one point. That's how I interpret it. Because the U.S. now has to be more afraid than ever before that North Korea is not bluffing in any way with the ICBMs. But the risk is very high that they have several ICBMs that are working that might overcome the missile defense system in Alaska and might actually hit the U.S. homeland. Hmm. And so it's going to be tougher for the U.S. to actually stand to their allies with that point. And so that's also, you, you see, the, what you see... Um, Testing-wise, he's the discussion onto a political level. And now they try to divide the allies, South Korea and the U.S., sure. by actually threatening, not directly, but indirectly, the U.S. with these various ICBM tests that we've been seeing over this year. So it's quite, quite a dark outlook right now at the moment. If they keep on doing that... It's dangerous. It's really dangerous, mm. especially with the maneuvers going on from the U.S. and South Korea. Something might happen. Some missile goes, could go astray, and then some commander in the field might sure. make a decision that is irreversible. And so I would say right now we, we are in dangerous times. Uh, and finally, very briefly, uh, Mr. Schiller, how likely is it that something could go wrong, that something like the, that worst-case scenario could happen? Well, here, again, I have to cite Murphy's Law. If anything can go wrong, it will go wrong. It's just a question of time. So I can only signal to, I can only hope that both players, both sides, keep a very cool head mm. and don't overreact if something goes wrong so that the conflict doesn't get a hot conflict and peace remains on the Korean Peninsula. Indeed. We'll leave it there. We've been speaking with uh, Marcus Schiller, the founder of the consulting company ST Analytics. Thank you once again for your time today. Thank you. It was a pleasure.
Welcome to the Korea 24 Stock and Forex Update. The benchmark Korea Composite Stock Price Index rose 27.25 points, or 1.15% on Tuesday, ending the day at 2,399.04. The tech-heavy KOSDAQ also rose, gaining 12.85 points, or 1.83%, closing the day at 713.33. On the foreign exchange, the local currency strengthened 16.31 against the dollar, ending the day at 1,384.91. You can check Korean stock and forex closings at world.kbs.co.kr. Next up, it's our regular daily segment, Korea Trending, where we take a look at some of the other news stories that have been trending online in Korea. And for that, we have Diane Yu joining us in the studio once again. Dan, hello. It's good to see you again. It's good to see you, Hajango. Hello. Okay, so what topics have you brought for us today? So first, we'll take a look at the controversy surrounding former President Moon Jae-in's intent to return the dogs gifted to him by North Korean leader Kim Jong-un. Next, we'll discuss which South Korean amusement park has won an award from the World Federation of Rose Societies. Then we'll end with something exciting that's taking place as we speak, a total lunar eclipse that's coloring the moon in red. Okay, let's get into that first story then. Can you tell us more? So former President Moon Jae-in has announced in a statement that he is to return a pair of dogs which were gifted to him by North Korean leader Kim Jong-un, along with the dog's puppy, back to the presidential office. The North's leader sent a pair of Pungsan breed dogs, one na- male named Songgang and a female named Gomi, to Moon after their third summit in Pyongyang in September 2018 as a token of their blossoming friendship. Following Moon's retirement in May this year, he took the two dogs and one puppy to his private residence in Yangsan, southeast of Seoul. Right, so a sweet story of a president looking after dogs gifted to him even after he left office Mm -hmm. has turned rather sour. Uh, So what was Moon's reason for returning the dogs? So basically, Moon is returning the dogs according to the law. You see, under the Presidential Records Act, the dogs are classified as presidential records and therefore were supposed to be returned to the presidential archives in principle. But on the last day of his five-year tenure, May 9th of this year, the Presidential Archive signed an agreement with Moon to entrust the three dogs to him. Initially, an arrangement was made where Moon was to be given 2.5 million won a month to help raise the three dogs by the Ministry of the Interior and Safety. However, the expenses did not go through due to opposition. Hence, Moon's side then expressed intent to hand over the dogs on Saturday. Right. Being given dogs as a gift was rather unprecedented for Korea, mm-hmm. but it wasn't uh, directly to Moon. It was to the presidential office, right. essentially. So there were some legal and bureaucratical, bureaucratic obstacles mm-hmm. that uh, they had to go through, that they had to sort out uh, for Moon to continue to look after them. Right. But it looks like it wasn't sorted out mm-hmm. with uh, Moon's office blaming his successor's office. Exactly. So how did the presidential office react to this then? The presidential office denied the claim, saying discussions about the amendments are underway between relevant parties and it's up to their decision, not the president, and that it was, quote, entirely the decision of former President Moon Jae-in's side, unquote, to return the dogs without waiting for a revision. In a meeting with reporters about the management of the dogs, an official from the presidential office said, quote, unquote, it's under the jurisdiction of the presidential archives, therefore the archives will decide. Right, so Yoon's office said it was still in the process of making relevant Mm -hmm. arrangements, but uh, Moon's office said it doesn't seem to be happening at all. So the status 
of the dogs remain in limbo mm -hmm. for now. They seem to be uh, the unfortunate victims of some political tug of war, maybe. Yes. Hopefully their status gets resolved and they are looked after in a loving home, wherever they go. Mm -hmm. Let's get into the second story of the day now. What do you have for us? Everland, an amusement park in Yongin, Gyeonggi province, has clinched the Award of Garden Excellence for its Rose Garden, selected by the World Federation of Rose Societies. This is the first time for any garden in South Korea to receive the top prize and come as just one month after the International Rose Competition in Japan awarded the perfume Everscape, a rose developed at the amusement park with prizes in four categories, including the gold medal, which is a comp uh, competition's highest award. That sounds great. Can you tell us some more about the World Federation of Rose Societies and their awards? The World Federation of Rose Societies was established in 1968 and is currently leading the development of the global rose industry through unifying the rose classification system, collecting historical research on roses, and selecting and distributing excellent varieties. The Korea Rose Society joined the World Federation in 2018 and is striving to enhance rose expertise and invigorate cultural exchange with other countries, along with conservation activities for native roses in South Korea. And what was Everland's response? I'm sure they were thrilled to hear the news. Mm -hmm. Ha Ho Su, an official from the Everland Rose Garden and the development of new variety of roses, said, quote, We're very honored that Everland Rose Garden was selected as the Award of Garden Excellence right after the rose that we developed in-house won the highest prize in an international competition, unquote. He added that, quote, In the future, Everland plans to develop better and new varieties and make beautiful rose gardens to provide a happy and enjoyable experience to our visitors, unquote. Yes, yeah, so amid the roller coasters and th thrill rides, visitors can enjoy an award-winning mm -hmm. Uh, Rose Garden the next time they visit. Now let's uh, move on to our last story of the day. What else has been trending today? The sky in South Korea tonight is about to turn into a marvelous astronomical event as the moon is expected to turn to a coppery shade of red in the sky during a total lunar eclipse, hence the name blood moon. A lunar eclipse is when the sun, the earth, and the moon lines up, causing the moon to pass through Earth's shadow. So it may come as a surprise that the moon doesn't simply darken as it enters the Earth's shadow. That's because moonlight is usually just reflected sunlight. And while most of that sunlight is blocked during a lunar eclipse, some of it wraps around the edges of the Earth. That in turn filters out the shorter, bluer wavelengths and allow only redder, longer wavelengths to hit the moon, making the moon red. Right, so the blood moon phenomena, they are rare, but they do occur every few years, every mm -hmm. once every few years. But I understand there's an even rarer sight uh, during today's eclipse as well. Right, though lunar eclipses aren't super uncommon, there is something special about tonight's eclipse. This is because Uranus occultation is expected to take place as well. Both events occurring at the same time happen only once or twice every century. In astronomy, occultation refers to a phenomenon in which distant objects are covered by nearby objects. Simply put, the moon is the closest this heavenly body to the earth and so it sometimes passes in front of the others and as seen from our perspective when this occurs we call it a solar or lunar eclipse but when some other object is blocked it is known as an occultation tonight the moon will cover the planet uranus okay and what time will the eclipse begin and what's the best way for our listeners to uh, observe tonight's uh, blood moon here in south korea 
According to the Korea Astronomy and Space Science Institute, this lunar eclipse can be observed starting from a partial lunar eclipse in which a part of the moon is blocked by the Earth's shadow. The institute said this partial solar eclipse would begin at 6.08 p.m. The total lunar eclipse would start at around 7.16 p.m., and this is expected to last for about 85 minutes until 8.41 p.m. Tonight's lunar eclipse can be observed with the naked eye and will begin immediately after the moonrise. However, for the Uranian is occultation, the only way to view it is with astronomical telescopes. Okay, so look up to the skies tonight. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's all for Career Trending today. Thank you for those stories, and we'll see you next time. See you tomorrow. For today's Touch Basins Hole, we're joined by head coach for South Korea's national men's rugby team, Charles Lowe, who took helm of the team in early 2021. Uh, in the nation's rugby community, he has been called the Rugby Hiddink, referring to Gus Hiddink, the legendary coach of the national football team. He's referred to in this way because of the transformative impact he has had on Korean rugby. To learn more about his story and what he hopes to achieve in South Korea, Mr. Lowe joins us now via video. Mr. Lowe, welcome to the show. Uh, Thank you very much for having me on. Okay, so can you tell us a bit about your background and how you ended up coaching the Korean national team? I understand that you were in Japan for quite a few years before coming to Korea. Yes, um, I started my coaching career working at the Sharks Rugby Union, which was in South Africa, one of the Super Rugby franchises. And then I ended up going to Japan and working with uh, one of the top league teams, Canon, for three years. And um, and then I went to work at a university in Japan. And then from there, I met a lot of the Korean people when we came on uh, training camps to Korea. And um, so I've, I've known the Korean coaches and the Korean culture for it's probably for close to eight to ten years. Right, okay. Um, yeah, so that's where I met most of the coaches, most of the, some of the players. I was involved in coaching some of the players when they were still at university, at Yonsei University, Korea University, Dunkirk University. And even coached, uh, helped coach, uh, helped the coach from Sangmu, um, the, the national uh, armed forces team. So I've been, I've been helping and assisting on the side for a number of years, but with no expectations of anything happening other than just like trying to help Korea become better. And then this opportunity came up after the um, after we qualified for the Olympics. Um, and uh, it was a great opportunity. It's something that I'd always dreamed about was going to the Olympics. Um, so when the opportunity came up, I took it. Right. So it was basically a no-brainer then uh, at the time for you. Yes, yes. It was just it was something I dreamt about my whole life. Um, you know, coaching a team to the Olympics and um, and uh, irrespective of what team I was going to be involved with, it, it was something that I wanted to do and desperately wanted to do and, and it was a great experience. So you were familiar with the uh, Korean national team setup, but still, uh, what was your first impression when you uh, took on the role officially? What did you find when you took on the team? Um, I, I've, like the first thing I noticed is that it's a really, really great bunch of people. Like, I mean, the players are just unbelievably to, unbelievable to work with. Um, they have got such such a great work ethic; it's it's frightening. 
Um, but uh, on the other side, the flip side was the the physical condition of the players was like very very poor. You know? So and and then the skill development and game game understanding uh, wasn't at the level that uh, was required to com- to be competitive on the world stage. So those are the two areas that we really worked hard on was the fundamental skill development, game understanding, and physical conditioning. Right, so it was the very basics, really, then, that a career uh, were lacking, that you had to start from scratch, essentially. You see, a lot of people sort of misunderstand the concept of basics, you know. Um, it's basics is, is not just the ability to catch and pass a rugby ball or any sport. It doesn't matter what sport you play. It's the ability to do it accurately, under speed, under pressure, under fatigue in a game situation. That, that is the key element. And that's what people didn't understand. So if you didn't put people under pressure or if you didn't make them fatigued, they could still catch and pass quite easy. But the minute you started added in the accuracy element, you know, mm. and the speed element, you put, you know, you added in those all those other elements, what started happening is errors started mounting. And it was then tried to highlight to the players, you know, we have to be error free under pressure. So how do we do that? Well, we've got to be more accurate and we've got to do it quicker and faster. And and so that's something that I think a lot of coaches, and not just in Korea, I think all over the world sort of get wrong. Um, so any sport is just the ability to perform the basics accurately at speed under pressure. And how has the Korean team taken to uh, your training and your philosophies then? Uh, have they picked it up? And are you seeing the improvements that you wanted to see? Oh, yes. There's been amazing improvements, uh, not only in individual players' performances, but in team performances. Um, Just after the uh, Olympics in 2021, we had a a Rugby World Cup qualifier, sevens qualifier in November of of 2021. And we we made the Rugby Sevens World Cup. and, and 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 in sort of in difficult circumstances because the sevens game has moved on like exponentially compared to when it where it was to in early two thousands. It's fully professional, um, and we made it and we performed really well. We went to the uh, Rugby World Cup in September this year, and we we lost two games and won two games, which is a which I thought was a really really good performance from the team. Right. So uh, you took the team. Uh, to the Olympics, although they had already qualified for the Olympics. But then uh, you were there throughout the whole road to uh, South Africa to the uh, Rugby Sevens World Cup then? Yes, correct. So so I was brought in in 2019 to help prepare the team for the Olympic qualifier. So I was brought in as a special assistant coach or a technical advisor, and I worked with the current coach at that time, um, uh, Mr. Saw from the uh, Korean Armed Forces is a really good guy, really knowledgeable, and, and um, I, get along, I get along really well with him. And um, so we, we worked together and we prepared the team for the Olympics. And, um, and then, yeah, we just, and then after, after the Olympics, um, you know, the Rugby World Cup came about, and we just keep on trying to keep moving the goals hmm. um, and to make sure we try and achieve our vision. Sure. What was it like to win those two games at the Rugby World Cup? Uh, that in itself was a landmark achievement for South Korea, right? Um, yeah, it's, it, ha- it, it is a landmark achievement in the current, con- in the current climate with, uh, where the game has progressed to. Um, if you go back 20 years, um, the game has, be- has totally changed um, in the last 20 years. So in the current climate, it's a, it was a landmark achievement, yeah.
Right, so what do you make of uh, your new moniker, the rugby hiddink? As I said, a goose hitting, he led South Korean national football team to that Cinderella run to the semi-finals of the 2002 World Cup and became a national hero. Uh, what do you make of that comparison? Um, I don't place too much on conspar- comparisons, to be honest. <laughs> I mean, I know, I know Gus Hiddink is a phenomenal coach and a phenomenal person. Um, you know, all I do is just try and do my job to the best of my ability and try and improve the players on a day-to-day basis. So... I don't let titles or what people say interfere with what I'm trying to do as a coach. Yeah. So it must be rewarding to see the team progress. And uh, there's been also public recognition of the team's efforts, especially after their gutsy performance uh, at the Olympics as well. Yes, I think what's happened is that uh, as some of the players have um, gained a little bit of notoriety, and been on television more, more, more and more often. Um, the the uh, the standing of rugby in, in the in the community has sort of grown a little bit, and and I'm very appreciative for that. Um, we, we need our heroes to go out there and market the game on on um, on our behalf. Um, so yeah, I, I think it's a great opportunity to to take the game to the to the people and and, and get people involved and interested and excited about rugby. Right, and then after the World Cup uh, came the Asia Rugby Sevens Series. Uh, that got underway with the first leg played in Bangkok, Thailand from October 22nd mm. to 23rd uh, with the Sevens team involved. Uh, the teams that participated in the competition were Hong Kong, Japan, China, South Korea, the UAE, the Philippines and Malaysia and South Korea ranked third in the first leg of the competition so far. Uh, how do you assess teams' careers of performance there? I thought it was an unbelievable performance based on uh, which players were available and and which players weren't available. Um, The Korean Sports uh, Festival, um, I think the National Sports Festival was held in the middle of October. So there were, and there were a lot of players unavailable because of injuries and some players had gone overseas to Uzbekistan on a a training camp. Mm. Um, We we took a a very inexperienced team to, to Thailand. And uh, they performed unbelievably brilliantly. We had some key players, obviously, some key members, some experience in the team. But what I was looking for was just players to to play together as a team, fight together for each other, and make sure we start, you know, we do the things that we practiced. And we only had three days preparation. Um, so that was a phenomenal performance on the back of three days preparation. Um, we, we obviously, there were a couple of areas we were caught out, um, but we'll work on those and fix them and, and the next leg. Sure, and you talk about exposure. The next leg will in fact be taking place here in South Korea in Incheon. That's from November 12th to November 13th. Uh, the team must be excited to be playing in front of a home crowd. Yeah, no, they, they're very motivated. Um, they, we're busy working uh, very hard at the moment. I actually just rushed back from the training field to be on time for this interview. <laughs> so the, the the players are the players like really put in a lot of effort. Um, yeah, we train in three times a day. Um, you know, we, we you know we everything is really really well planned out and well thought out with regard to what we do, with regard to conditioning and and what type of exercises and skill development uh, stuff we're working on. So um, yeah, it's looking good. We're still lacking a couple of players. Some players will be coming in on Wednesday because they've just finished with the career Yonsei University game. And some of the players that were unavailable that went to Uzbekistan will be available. So our full, we should have our full squad 
in camp on Wednesday and we can start focusing on more detailed related stuff for the opposition that we're going to be playing against. Sure, and then after this series will be uh, next year the Hangzhou Asian Games as well. Looking ahead, what's your goal with the South Korean national team? What do you hope to achieve? Uh, what kind of legacy do you hope to leave behind? Um, I think sort of I put it in a different way. It's like, what's our vision? Mm. So our vision is what drives us, and our goals are little milestones along the way that we celebrate. So our vision is to be competitive in international rugby uh, sevens and fifteens. That's our vision. That is driving us. And um, and then the the goals that we want to achieve or, or the, the the milestones would be obviously to become part of the sevens challenger series and also to become part of the um, hopefully in the long term the world seven series. Um, and that's from a sevens perspective. And then, obviously, we, as we become more competitive in those events, we will get better and better. So we're trying to look at the world rather than focus on Asia. Um, you know, if, we, if we're competitive in the world, then playing in the Asian games will be just relatively uh, easy <laughs> rather than difficult, mm. you know. Mm. And then the same thing with the 15s. The 15s side of the game, which is an important aspect in the development of, of other players, is not just to have two two test matches a year against one against Malaysia, one against Hong Kong, but rather start introducing additional test matches and tours to European countries or down to Southern Hemisphere. And um, it's all about getting players' experience, uh, getting players to understand what is required to be competitive. And um, I think I think that's that's our vision. You know, the team has bought into it, the players are bought into it, and that's why we need an extended squad. So we can't just have like 12 players available to us because there's a lot of injuries that occur. Mm. So we have to have players that are competent, uh, that are ready um, and uh, ready to step in at any moment's time. Um, so we're, doing, we're trying to do that, build the squad, an extended squad, make sure there's depth in all the positions, and, and then... And then just uh, try and maintain it. Um, with regard to uh, leaving a legacy, I, it's more about making sure that if I'm not here, the systems that I've put in place and the people that I've uh, coached, um, the players that I've coached or, and the coaches that I've coached have hopefully can continue with that system and, uh, and try and unite career from a rugby perspective to make career strong in the world. Um, I, I think Koreans are really, really passionate people um, but it's important to unite and be, be united in a, in a common vision and a common goal yeah. Well it sounds like you are taking on quite a few challenges but uh, we wish you luck on uh, everything that you are trying to achieve uh, with the team and hopefully you can help uh, continue to transform the team and continue to leave uh, that uh, legacy and perhaps you'll be not just known as uh, the rugby hitting but just as rugby's uh, Charles Lowe as well. Uh, we appreciate your time. We've been speaking to the head coach of South Korea's national men's rugby team, Charles Lowe. Thank you once again for your time today. No problem. Thank you very much for having me on. This is Violinist ETU. Concert master at Staatskapelle Berlin. You are listening to Korea 24.
Welcome back. And we finish up now with a morning edition preview where we take a look at some interesting features reports coming out in tomorrow's newspapers, namely the Career Times and the Career Herald. And for that today, we have Walter Lee once again joining us in the studio. Walter, hello. It's good to see you again. Hello, John. It's always lovely to see you. Okay, so what's the first story that you have for us today? Okay, so our first article is coming out of the Korean Herald by Im Hyun-soo, talking about Korea's online travel permit system drawing some criticism for travellers. Right, so you're talking about the Korea Electronic Travel Authorization System, or KETA. Mm-hmm. Now, the system was meant to make the process of entering the country smoother for both the authorities and the travellers, but... Uh, What seems to be the problem then? Right. So the KETA has had some mixed reviews, but it seems that people uh, wanting to travel to South Korea want more consistency and transparency when using the system. Now, Alva Longmore, an Irish woman, has been living in South Korea for a year now and was excited when her father and her father's partner planned to come and visit her. Her father applied for the KETA on a Tuesday evening for his flight the following day, but it wasn't approved for another five days. So the father's partner, on the other hand, um, applied for the KETA the same night and was approved before the flight. So the father was actually denied boarding due to the delay in the KETA. Now, there are also going to be plenty of other stories that will come out of this article tomorrow. Right, that sounds very frustrating indeed. Mm. So... Is the government then aware of the issues? Are there any plans to fix these issues? Well, strangely enough, it doesn't appear that way. The Ministry of Justice has said to the Korean Herald, which uh, when asked to comment on it, the KETA is designed to help foreigners enter the country quickly and conveniently by preventing those who would be denied entry or be on a long waiting list for an interview from boarding a plane at home. Now, it added that it encourages people to apply for the travel permit 72 hours prior to boarding to save from confusion. Right, so that last point I think is important, apply apply as early as you can, but it sounds like there does uh, need to be other contingencies in place for people who are in a rush, Mm. and uh, there are other issues I believe that need to be ironed out as well, so uh, this does seem to be something that uh, the Korean government does perhaps need to look at. Okay, let's move on to our next story. What do you have for us? Next out of the culture section of the Korea Times is an article by Kwak Yeon-soo on Korean filmmaker Park Chan-wook. Yes, uh, Park Chan-wook, best known for his films such as Old Boy, Handmaiden, and of course, most recently, his movie Decision to Leave, which was a big hit at Cannes, right? Mm, that's right. So Park Chan-wook was honoured at this year's Los Angeles County Museum of Art, or LACMA. Now, LACMA is an annual event supported by luxury brand Gucci and also co-chaired by LACMA trustee Eva Chow and Hollywood actor Leonardo DiCaprio. Now, the event aims to honour artists who have contributed to the development of modern and visual art. Now, mentioning Decision to Leave, a movie that Park Chang won the Best Director Award for at the Cannes Film Festival this year, has been chosen as Korea's submission for Best International Feature Film at the 95th Academy Awards, which is set to take place on March 23rd, 2023. Okay, so it could be another Oscar winner as well. Uh, Did Pak himself have anything to say after receiving this latest honour by LACMA? 
Yeah, so Parker said in his acceptance speech, I do not know how to thank you for such an award. That is beyond me. He then added, but I remembered advice from a friend that is familiar with both Korean and American culture. She told me that you should not be too humble. So he finished off his speech with, so I will take that advice and say, I'm not surprised for the award that I obviously <laughs> deserve. Among some of the other Korean participants at the gala were Cho In-sung, Park Si-yeon and Blackpink's Rose. Well, that's a great speech. Okay, we'll wrap it up there for Morning Edition Preview. Thank you for those stories, and we'll see you next time. See you next time. And that's all from our show today. Thank you for staying with us. We'll be back same time tomorrow, so do join us again then for more news, views, and reviews from Korea. Till then, we hope you have a great day. I've been your host, Kwon jang and thank you, as always, for listening. Goodbye.